If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to get one out. Uh, we're going to be, uh, of course, in it again today. We are Oakland's Bible Chapel. That's our middle name. We're going to be in the Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Revelation again, Revelation chapter 6, and we're actually going to be in a couple passages in the Old Testament. Um, like if anybody has ever been here before has probably heard that. Revelation chapter 6, we uh, find the story here. John, the apostle of Jesus, the last one alive, an old man, 90 years old, exiled on the island of Patmos, and uh, he is there receiving a vision from the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is showing John some stuff. And he, we've just gotten into this. We've seen some, uh, we, got, we read about the letters to the churches in Asia. We have uh, seen the, the visions, the three visions in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the vision of the heaven and what's happening there. And now we're zeroing in on this one event in those visions of Jesus Christ, the, the slain Lamb of God before the throne of God, going to the throne of God and taking a seven-sealed scroll from the hand of God and all of heaven breaking into praise because of that. And then Jesus begins to open this scroll, breaking one seal at a time. And we've talked about the first five of those seals. There's two more seals that need to be opened here. What's really going on here? What, what, what is Jesus telling and showing to John and therefore to us is there's a couple of ways to think about this to kind of keep this in context because context is king in understanding the Bible. You have to understand who is saying what to whom, when, why. It's always what's the original author's intent for the original hearers. That's what we want to understand every time we read the Bible. And what's going on here is Jesus is answering some questions for, for John and for us. Uh, there was one question in particular at the end of Jesus' life. He has uh, gathered all his, he's, b he's been to the cross, he's been to the grave, he's been walking around for 40 days talking to people and showing himself, teaching his people. Jesus is always a teacher, he's teaching for 40 days about what's happening. And they get to the end of that and they're at the mountain and Jesus is about to go back to heaven and his disciples say, Jesus, is it time for the kingdom yet? That's what they want to know. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's not. You just go ahead. You just go tell everybody what happened here. Leave the rest up to me. And here in John, or sorry, here in Revelation, Jesus is answering his disciples' question. He has come back 60 years later. Okay, you guys wanted to know about the kingdom? Well, here it is. Let me tell you about the kingdom. That's one way to think about what's happening in Revelation. He's explaining to his followers what is going to happen in the end as his kingdom approaches. There's another way you can think about what's happening here in Revelation, is he's answering Daniel's question. Daniel, a guy who lived 500 years before Jesus in the kingdom of Babylon, is a very um, remarkable part, a remarkable statement, a remarkable vision, a visit from Gabriel, a message from Daniel that is amazing actually and so the visions of Daniel all have these like two basic components okay uh, what's going to happen next is what's told to Daniel and what's going to happen at the time of the end Daniel's praying and God gives him visions he's okay God Daniel's very concerned about his people all the time and God says don't worry about your people this is what's going to happen and then as he begins to answer those questions he switches to the end and says something about also about the latter days 
Even Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel has the same format. You guys um, remember that when Nebuchadnezzar, when Daniel was a, a young man, had a dream of a great giant statue with a gold head and a silver chest and bronze middle and iron legs and clay feet and all of that stuff. And what the, the point of the vision is, okay, after you, Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to come this. And after that, there's going to come this. And then even in that vision, there's a, there's a description of the end of time of a great boulder coming in and smashing that statue, and the boulder goes into a brig mountain and fills the whole earth. The four beasts uh, in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 7, the same thing. Here's the, here's the things that's going to happen now. Here's the thing that's going to happen at the end. Daniel chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat is the same thing. It's going to be the Medes and the Persians are going to come in, and then Greece is going to come in, and then a whole bunch of stuff, and then it skips to the end. And at the end, this is what's going to happen. In Daniel's final vision, chapters 10 and 12, the kings of the north and the kings of the south and all the battles that they engage in after Daniel's death and all the battles that they're in going to re-engage in at the end of time. That's how Daniel's book and his prophecies work. And then Daniel chapter 9 is kind of stuck right in the middle of all of those visions. And Daniel prays for his people. He prays for the nation of Israel. He prays for the city of Jerusalem. He prays for the temple that's been destroyed and his people that have been dispersed into the, the surrounding nations. And we read in uh, Daniel that Daniel's reading what the prophet Jeremiah wrote. Okay, so Jeremiah lived about 200 years before Daniel. Some of the timing of the Bible is really easy to get in your head if you want to remember. You can remember this, okay? King David, 1000 BC, okay? Give or take, somewhere in there. It, the King David ruled in 1000 BC, okay? Before that, Moses, 1400 years. 400 years before that, and 600 years before that, Abraham. So Abraham at 2000 BC, David at 1000 BC, fit the rest in there. Moses is in between Abraham and David. But after David, this is where the, the heyday of the God's prophets are. And Jeremiah, you can maybe remember, Jeremiah is 700 BC. Isaiah is 600 BC. And Daniel is 500 BC. Those, eight, those dates are all approximate, but you can kind of get the idea of the timeline. So we've got Abraham, Moses, David, and then the prophets begin to roll out. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, some of the minor prophets. Okay, so 200 years after Jeremiah lived, Daniel's reading what Jeremiah wrote. In Jeremiah 25, it says this. You can look in your Bible. If your Bible has the same page numbers as mine, it's page 652, slightly over halfway through. Jeremiah 25, Daniel's reading this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. This is 200 years before this happened. And it's, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years, Jeremiah says. And if you just flip over two pages to the right to Jeremiah 29, you can read this. When, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, God says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's an old man. He's been in Babylon for almost 70 years. You know that, that promise of they're going to come and take you to, to exile in Babylon? Well, that happened. And Daniel was one of the youths, one of the young men that was taken captive. He lived his whole life in Babylon in captivity it's almost 70 years now since uh, Daniel first uh, went to Babylon. He's pr- approaching 90 or 80 years old, probably, 80 to 85. It's about the year um, 540 B.C. And the this, this 70 years are, are coming to an end, and he's reading about it in the Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar's been dead for over 20 years now. The Babylonian Empire has fallen and has been conquered by a whole new empire, Persia, which is just modern-day Iran and by a king named Cyrus. A lot has happened since Jeremiah wrote those words 700 B.C., and 250 years later, we signed Daniel going like, hey, God, you said 70 years. What's going on here? Incidentally, that whole prophecy about Persia and Cyrus, um, Isaiah lived about 600 B.C., and uh, when Isaiah was alive, they, 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 David had been dead for about 300 years, um, three or 400 years. His, David's kingdom has been split by his grandsons into two nations, the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah. The people of God are divided. They're ignoring God more and more with every passing generation. Now, there's occasionally like short-lived revivals. We can read about those. But overall, Israel just looks more and more like her neighbors. The thing that God didn't want them to do. Don't be like the other nations. Be, be how I have designed you to be. You need to be a light to other nations. You don't need to be like them. And we read um, God speak to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8. I is, Isaiah is about to have a son. And uh, God says to Isaiah this. Before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother, this son that you're about to have, Isaiah, The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria, it's uh, northern Iraq, uh, eastern Turkey. Uh, The capital of the Assyrian Empire was Nineveh. You might know that name from the story of Jonah. God had wanted to send Jonah to Nineveh to speak to them on his behalf. Um, Assyria, northern Iraq. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a, the modern-day city of Nablus is Samaria. It's in the north part of the Palestinian, Palestinian territory in the West Bank of the area, the West Bank of the Jordan River. And Isaiah, God says this to Isaiah, The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria, of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go out over its banks, and it will sweep into Judah and it will overflow. What God is saying, hey, hey, Isaiah, before your kid can even talk, this kid that's going to be born, the northern kingdom of Israel was going to fall to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come up against Judah as well. Now, Isaiah goes on to prophesy at that time, um, the southern kingdom will survive longer. The, the, the Assyrians aren't going to be able to conquer Judah, not at this time. And that's exactly what happened. You can read the whole story in 2 Kings chapters 16 to 19 or 2 Chronicles 32. And Isaiah goes on to tell that story too. The story of God miraculously delivering Jerusalem from the king of Assyria, this guy named Sennacherib. He's He's a famous Assyrian king. Very powerful. But... I de- Judas, what he's saying here is, uh, okay, Israel's time has come, but not quite Judah yet. Isaiah, he goes on in 39 and says, uh, Behold, the days are coming 
when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried, not to Assyria, to Babylon, he says. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall, will, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And 150 years later, it happened just like that, and Daniel is one of the sons that's captured. Isaiah has more to say than that, though. He's going to reveal what's going to happen after Babylon. And later in his writing, he's writing about this future devastation of God's people under the Babylonian Empire. But then in chapter 44, we read this. But now hear Israel, whom I have chosen, God says. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Fear not, Jeshurun, whom, whom I have chosen. Jeshurun is just God's kind of nickname for Israel, for Jerusalem, for his people. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Okay, get what God's saying here. He's like, okay, if, if the powers of this world are so, so smart, why don't you ask them what's going to happen in the future and see what happens? And God goes, then, goes on then to describe through Isaiah just the foolishness of trusting in anyone but God for the future. Then, he re then we read this. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Sorry, lost my thought. Fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Now remember, this is 600 BC. Babylon hasn't even come yet. They shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. I am God who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. And then he says this, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, and of the temple your foundation should be laid. Okay, there is no Cyrus yet. There is no Persian Empire to be considered at this time. This is long before this ever happens on the scene. And here we have God calling the future ruler by name 150 years before he arrives. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, Isaiah writes, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to let loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I call you by your name, God says. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form darkness, I create light, I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God names Cyrus 250 years before Cyrus was, or sorry, 150 years before Cyrus is even born. 
No Persia, no Cyrus. God's saying, here's what's going to happen. Isaiah, uh, Judah hasn't even been conquered yet, but let me tell you, uh, it's going to be, and it's going to be conquered by the Babylonians, but I'm going to regather, uh, I'm going to crush the Babylonians with this other empire, the Persian empire, this guy named Cyrus who's going to come in and wipe out these people that have taken you captive. God's declaring through Isaiah, not just that the captivity and the desolation, desolation of Jerusalem will end, but who is going to be the one to end it? God's going to give this future King Cyrus a kingdom that replaces Babylon as the dominant power of the region, even though Babylon hasn't even come yet. Anyway, in Daniel chapter 9, we, f- we find all of these things have come true, right? Daniel was a young boy when he was captured by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon and taken to Babylon. He lived his whole life there and he saw everything come true. The Babylonian empire has fallen, Cyrus has arrived, and now he rules the world, kingdom of Israel has fallen to the Assyrians, the kingdom of Judah has fallen to the Babylonians, and the kingdom of Persia is now ruling under their promised king, Cyrus. And Daniel's an old man, and the 70 years are up, and he begins to pray, God, what's going to happen next? Your people, what's going to happen next to your city? What's going to happen next to your temple? It's in ruins, God. When's this all going to change? And God sends him an answer through the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel lets Daniel know the answers to his questions about the future of God's people. That's in Daniel chapter 9. It's one of the most pivotal, important prophecies in the whole of the Old Testament. Because here's the thing that's interesting. Gabriel's answer follows the pattern of the rest of Daniel's visions. Here's some, Gabriel tells him some stuff about what's going to happen next and some stuff about what's going to happen at the time of the end. And Daniel learns from Gabriel that there's going to be, at the end of the age, a final period of seven years. God has a plan for his people in the end, a seven-year period that will bring about the eschaton, bring about the end of the age and the start of the one to come. That's the eschaton. There's going to be a period of seven years that God is going to start, and when he finishes it, the kingdom will have arrived. Now, the promised seven-year period, I mentioned this last week, is sometimes re- mistakenly referred to as the tribulation, okay? But Daniel's 70th week is never called the tribulation in the Bible. Okay, that's a made-up word that we've used to, for that. There is tribulation described in the Bible. There is a great tribulation or the day of the Lord or the time of Jacob's trouble that is called in the Bible, but none of those are equal to Daniel's 70th week. Daniel's 70th week is just Daniel's 70th week. Okay, if you don't remember that, just go back in our series to Daniel chapter 9, or come to Bible study on Thursday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we can have a chat about it. How's that? Okay, here we go. I don't know how far in we are here. 10 minutes, 15 minutes into this sermon. I haven't even got to Revelation yet. Why did I say all that? Um, not much about Revelation, because here's, we need to understand what Jesus is doing. We need to understand what he has already done. He is teaching his people. He's teaching his people from his word. That's what he's always done, and that's what he's doing here in Revelation. Jesus taught as he went around Judea for three years. Right? Read the New Testament. What were the scribes and the Pharisees so so amazed at? The, The authority of his teaching, right? People were astounded. And what did Jesus teach? Well, Jesus taught them from the Bible. 
Of course he did. He taught them from the scripture. When he, when he was on the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? When they encounter Jesus, they don't know, what he, don't know who he is. What does he do? He opens the Bible and he explains it to them. That's how Jesus works. How many times have you heard in the Gospels Jesus say, um, have you not read? And then he quotes the Bible and explains it to them. And here in Revelation, Jesus is doing the same. He's just explaining his word to people. Jesus is expanding on and clarifying and explaining things that John would already know about, things that have already been written, things that God has already spoken about through his prophets. We've been studying Revelation 6 and the opening of the seven-sealed scroll for the past few weeks, right? The scroll with God's will, with God's plan for the end of the age written on it, which nobody has seen yet. And as we've discussed, the first uh, five seals and, and what happens when Jesus breaks them open, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse come out one after the other. We start with the first one, the promised antichrist, the promised man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the bold-faced king, whatever Old Testament term is given for him. He's the first thing out of the gate at the beginning of the seven years, followed by three more acts of devastation. And we see that a quarter of the earth is given over to be killed by these judgments. And in this fifth seal, we see the souls under the altar of people who are being killed for the testimony of the gospel, being killed for following Christ, and they are coming into heaven by the thousands. And then we come to the sixth seal. And what John sees when the sixth seal is open is something that he would have immediately recognized. Okay? This would not be a mystery to John at all. This is one of the central prophecies of this entire book, not just Revelation. Let's just read the sixth seal. Revelation chapter 6, 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Now, just so we're all clear, these are literal things, okay? These are literal events that happen. Now, they are described somewhat poetically, but they're real things. He's talking about the real sun in the sky and the real moon in the night and, the, all of the, and a real earthquake, real people calling out in fear. Notice this also, the first four seals, they are things that are happening on the earth. So they're sent from heaven their effect is on the earth. The fifth seal is this glimpse into heaven and what's happening there while the things in earth on earth are happening. And now we are at um, those things on earth that are things that are very familiar and regular on the earth, right? They're just talking about war. They're talking about disease, talking about famine. Those are all things that we've all experienced. They're not unknown to us. They're not unexperienced by mankind. These Here's the thing that makes this all crazy, the thing that makes it unique. (laughs) 
the severity of these things. I mean, it's all unprecedented war and famine. It's all happening all over the earth. So much so that one quarter of the people on the earth are going to die. The fifth seal, the state of things of heaven. The sixth seal is looking back at the earth and something less familiar, something less experienced by mankind. Cosmic signs and an earthquake. Okay, Cosmic just comes from the word cosmos. It just means the universe beyond the earth. Okay? That's all cosmic is. is. Stuff that's not on earth is cosmic. Okay? So when we say cosmic, it just means in the sky. The cosmos is all of the universe that's beyond our atmosphere. And when Jesus opens this seal, it will terrify the world like nothing else because the signs will be in the sky. And we have no power over the sky. Right? Notice also the earthquakes. How much power do we have over earthquakes? None, right? We are absolutely powerless for things that come from the sky and, that thing, and for things that come up from the earth. We, we, I mean, we try to live them with them, but, but there's no way we can stop them. Earthquakes are mentioned a lot in the Bible as something that God does in judgment. God sometimes shakes the earth. Now, I haven't experienced that very much a couple times. But is that not the freakiest thing that ever happens? The ground starts moving? Like, what? That makes me so helpless. Whenever God does that, whenever God lets that happen in our world today, even on a small scale, our helplessness and our powerlessness come crashing down on us. And we pretend like we're in control of this world, right? We pretend we're in control of history, that we're the masters of our environment, and we're the determiners of our own destiny. Anybody ever heard some stuff like that? <laughs> but when it comes to our ability to impact the universe around us, we are weak at best and brief in effect. In the grand scheme of things, we are absolutely powerless over the cosmos. And here, in the sixth seal, God is going to show the whole earth just how powerless we are when he terrifies the earth as he displays his power over even the skies above us and the earth below us. And when John sees that happen, when Jesus cracks that sixth seal, he would know what he is seeing and why. The things that he sees are things that he would have heard of his whole life the language is not new. These events have been spoken about before. I'm going to read some scripture here. For, I'm going to have to skip most of it because um, just look in Jeremiah 30. Thus says the Lord of God of, of Israel, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the for fortunes of my people. But alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, and he shall be saved out of it. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be darkened in its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake out of its place. This is just Isaiah still from 600 BC. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. 
They will be shut up. The, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall. Leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. This is what Isaiah wrote 600 B.C. Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel, said, Wail, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. When I will blot out, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will make dark over you. I put darkness on your land. Zephaniah, be silent for the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. A day of wrath and great distress and anguish. A day of darkness and gloom and thick clouds and darkness. Joel, this is the one that uh, would have for sure um, piqued John's knowledge. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. All of this stuff is coming. It's all coming. It's all in Revelation. Just keep reading the book. All of it is there. There's a whole section on the harvest of the earth and angels putting in sickles. I think it's uh, chapter 14, maybe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of the decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are dark, darkened, and the stars withdraw their shinings. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people like there has never been before. Nor will be again after them through all the years of the generations. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the lord comes now john when he saw this would know all of that and he would be like okay i know what's happening here he would know what he is seeing and jesus talked about it too right um, his disciples are asking, hey, what's at the end? Um, it's Matthew 24 is the reference. What's going to happen after this? God, Jesus, you just said some stuff about the temple be just being destroyed. What's going to happen when you come back? What's this world going to be like? And what's, what about all this trouble and this persecution? Because Jesus says in Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the, the tribulation that his people are going to face, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven be shaken. He's quoting Joel right there, what we just read. He's quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's so many passages. This is the subject of the background of the Gospels and themselves, actually, this coming judgment of God. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What, he's, what they're saying is, the kingdom is coming. Prepare yourself. Judgment, 
the day of the Lord, the end of the indignation, the abomination of desolation, the trampling of Jerusalem, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble is coming. Wail, like Isaiah said, sound the alarm and tremble like Joel has warned you. The the earth will be overwhelmed with terror and everyone will be afraid. Everyone alive will feel the pain of those days. Wail and mourn and tremble. This whole idea of that's what this is, um, everybody is going to be affected by this. That's what verse 15 is all about here in Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. Right? We already, we are, we, in Isaiah it says it like this. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with, the, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the, so with the debtor. The idea here in Revelation and in Isaiah, there are no, no exemptions for this. Everybody is going to face this. No one will be able to save themselves. God will humble all the inhabitants of the earth, no exceptions. That's rich, poor, Young, old, doesn't matter. This is kind of like um, huh, death, okay? I don't, we all hate death. Everybody hates death. If you're alive today, Christian or not, doesn't matter, what, we hate death. And we all mourn and grieve at death, everybody in this life. But the followers of Jesus Christ have great hope even in the midst of our grief over death. And it's similar here. We Of course we fear the judgments. Of course we fear the tribulation coming on the earth. But we have great hope even in the midst of all this, even in the midst of all this fear. And even though life will be very hard and even dangerous in the latter days, we know what's happening and we know what it's for and we know what it leads to. Just like we know what death is and what is happening in death and why and what death leads to. And therefore, even in our grief and pain, we have hope. And the time of the end is similar. We know what's happening. We know why and, it, and what it leads to. And therefore, in, even in our fear and trembling, we have hope. But hope does not mean that we'll be exempt from fear any more than it means we're exempt from death. We're not exempt from the fear and the trembling of those days. It just means that all the fear and trembling aren't the end. Okay? And it's not meaningless. All these things have a purpose. But when they happen, it will be terrible. And it will be terrifying. Notice, uh, how does mankind respond to all this here? Well, um, when, they, when they see all this begin to happen, they, they grieve over their sin and they plead for God's mercy and forgiveness and they all ask Jesus into their hearts. Yeah, no, it doesn't, it doesn't go like that, right? No, of course, they, they try to escape. They run, they hide. There seems to be even some kind of recognition of what's going on because look in verse uh, seven, 16 and 17, they're, they're calling on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? It seems like they kind of get that this is what's happening, but, they, but in, rather than fall on their faces in repentance and asking for forgiveness and declaring the Lordship of Christ, we see verse 17, how they respond. They call, fall on us, hide us from the face of of him who was seated on the throne and from the, la, from the wrath of the Lamb. It seems like there's awareness, but there's no pleading for mercy, no calling out to God for grace and salvation. They hide. They try to get away, but they can't. There is no escape. 
the judgment of God is for all. Have a great week. See you next week. No, can't stop there, all right? Because that's only part of the story. We're going we're gonna to sing another song here, wherever Gary and Allie are, they can come up. Hey, there's good news today too, okay? The judgment of God, yes, it is for everyone. So is salvation, right? Chapter 5, we've already read. The lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He has ransomed people from all over the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for all nations. Salvation is available for all people everywhere. Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The message of the Bible, thankfully, is not just that everyone will be judged, but also that anyone can be saved. That's the amazing story of the Bible. Yes, God is clear in his word to us, Everyone is destined, destined because of the evil in their own hearts. Great amounts of evil or small amounts of evil, doesn't matter. All have fallen short, all have sinned, all have shaken their fist at one time or another in their life at God. At the end of every road for every person is waiting God's righteous judgment and condemnation for their sin. No exceptions, that is the fate of all mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Now, I don't know what you've done or not done. I don't know what's in your past and what's tucked away in the corners of your heart. I don't know your regrets. I don't know your failures or what or how you, your sin is entangling your heart. But I know that that is absolutely no obstacle to our Savior. He is absolutely willing and able to save anyone who will come to him. God's grace and God's mercy are infinitely more power than our broken and fallen hearts. And God knows this. That's why salvation belongs to him alone. But good news, he'll share it with anybody. Men, women, slave, free, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, religious, irreligious, none of that matters. Yes, all are destined for judgment, but anyone can be saved. This is the message of the Bible. Isaiah, again, so far back. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, you have nothing, come and buy and eat. Come and buy milk and wine without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for what that which is not bread? Your labor for things that do not satisfy. That's what God said. Why are you trying to save yourself? Stop trying to save yourself. You can't. He says this, come to me, God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God knows our frame. God knows we are dust. God knows we're guilty and we're powerless and we're sinful. And God will save anyone anyway. Our sin 
is no object for God's salvation. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You don't have to carry this burden. You don't have to carry the burden of death and judgment in your life. Take my yoke upon me, on you, upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke's easy, and my burden is light. And yes, God's judgment is coming for everyone, but so is God's salvation. Yes, there are dark days ahead, and people all over the world will see these things come upon the earth. People will see the Son of Man getting closer, and they will run, and they will hide. And we'll see later in Revelation, they were going to curse God for what he is doing. But not so the followers of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are dark days ahead, but that is not the end. And for the followers of Jesus, this, this is just the darkness before the dawn. This present darkness does not cause us to run and hide and shake our fists at God. Of course not. Jesus said, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. The approach of the Lamb is not something to hide from. As Jesus comes, we will not hide from him and wish for death like the rest of the world will do. We will raise our eyes in watchfulness and we will lift our voices in praise and worship and God's people will with one voice call out to our God and our Lord in prayer and praise. Come, Lord Jesus, faster, come faster. And he will and he will come and he will save every single person that has ever called out to him and he will judge everyone who has not and he will take his place as king of kings on this earth and this world will never be the same again 